Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. The English Oxford Dictionary defines a ritual as a religious or solemn ceremony consisting of a series of actions performed according to a prescribed order. Before I talk to you, I invite you to think with me. If you're comfortable, close your eyes for just a few moments and think about what rituals you have known. What rituals did you know as a child, as a youth, as an adult? What rituals do you know now? Just allow these rituals to come into your mind. With memories of rituals in your mind, I invite you to gently open your eyes and come back. Were you here early enough to hear the prelude? Did you recognize it? I asked our wonderful musicians if they could play canon in D, because when I think about ritual, one of the earliest memories I have is of weddings. My mom has five siblings, and they each have many children. Everyone in my mom's large family lived locally, which meant I went to a lot of weddings growing up. As a child, I was often a flower girl, and every wedding I attended was a Catholic wedding, full of rituals that as a child I found mesmerizing. As the flower girl in a Catholic wedding, one of my big jobs was to follow the bride to the statue of Mary while the soloist sang Ave Maria. I carried a crown of flowers, and when we arrived, the bride, my aunt or my neighbor or my cousin, she took the crown and placed it on top of Mary's head and said a prayer. I loved, even as a child, I loved that a woman was being honored. And I saw Mary as so kind and so beautiful. As I grew up in my church, I eventually became a cantor myself. Now it was my job to sing the Ave Maria while the brides walked over to honor Mary. This is how I got to know one of my best friends, Jonathan who played the piano for our church. One day when Jonathan and I were in high school, we met to go downtown. We were living in Chicago. We got on the train and I could tell that something was wrong. Usually calm, John was fidgeting. As I tried to figure out what was wrong, John blurted out, Allie, I'm gay. And then he burst into tears. I'd never seen John cry or even say he was afraid. We talked for a long time, and this is what I remember most vividly. As I was trying to comfort John, 
to tell him it would be okay. But Allie, he said, with a voice that was a lot more firm than I was used to, I will never be able to get married. I'll never get to have the Ave Maria. We won't crown Mary. At 14, this was the first time I realized that rituals can be safe to some and unsafe to others. They can embrace or they can lock out. That was how I started to understand religion. Many years later, I attended a Unitarian Universalist church for the first time when I was in college, and my first service happened to be the water in gathering ritual. For those of you who've never been to water ritual, it's a UU ritual where we bring water to worship. We take a turn to pour our water into one big container. The water can be boiled down and used for weddings, child dedications, memorial services, blessings. Water ritual was the first of many UU rituals that I experienced. As a new UU, I looked around me and I thought, wow, the rituals here welcome a lot more people than what I'm used to. I was excited that my new denomination felt more open. I went from seeing set rituals that outcasted many to seeing set rituals that were much more open, but I was still missing the most important category of ritual. I had not yet realized that we have the power to create ritual. Do you remember our message for all ages? Kevin and Alistair dropped stones in their family vase. This is a ritual that their family created. Let me tell you a little more about why. Alistair's great-great-grandpa, Henry, created this ritual more than a hundred years before we met Alistair. Henry lived in an orphanage until when he was 10, his parents Paulina and Jacob adopted him. Henry loved his parents, and when Paulina gave birth to twins Jennifer and Diana, Henry loved his sisters too. Henry watched Jennifer and Diana grow up. He saw them get baptized, make their first communion, have birthday parties. Henry didn't have these rituals. There were so many things Henry didn't get to experience with his family because he didn't find them until he was 10. So when Henry was starting his own family, he wanted to find a way to mark each person in the family later in life when they were becoming an adult. Henry created the stone ritual. But that's not where it stopped. Henry's daughter, Nora, asked her dad to expand this ritual when Nora wanted to get married. Dad, she said, I think we should include people who we marry. They're our family too. Henry agreed, and so now when someone got married, their spouse got to decorate a stone. Many, many years after Henry died, his great-great-grandchild, Sophia, was born. Sophia was transgendered. Sophia looked like a girl, but Sophia always knew that he was a boy. When he was in college, he decided to tell his family, and he took the name Samuel. When Samuel came home for Christmas, 
his family insisted that he decorate a new stone with his new real name. And so he did. Many years ago, Henry created a ritual he didn't get because he didn't get to participate in many rituals growing up. As his family grew and changed, they kept his ritual, but they also allowed his ritual to transform to better meet their needs. I didn't know Henry. He didn't teach me that we could create our own rituals. My UU congregation, as much as I loved and continue to love it, they didn't teach me this either. I learned that we could create rituals from my patients. I'm a hospital chaplain. I meet people in moments of crisis, and most often, I don't get a lot of time with them. Many of my patients are like my friend Jonathan. They have felt the rituals that they have known are not open to them. And then I have met many patients who feel lost. There are no rituals in their tradition for what they feel they most need, and no one's ever told them that they could ask for one. When I started training to be a chaplain, I thought my ability to care depended on what I knew. To be a chaplain, you need a lot of things. You need a three-year Master's of Divinity degree. You need thousands of hours of patient care. You need to have an understanding of many belief backgrounds. And you need to know how to assess a person's spiritual needs and their identities. But after a lot of work and a lot of time with patients, I've learned that my, my experience has shown me that my job is to listen and most of all to remember what I don't know. My job is to empower my patients to tell me what they need and to listen to how we can tend to those needs. I wanna give you just a few examples of what this looks like. I've changed the details of these stories to protect the identities of those I walk beside, but the experience and the meaning within it remains intact. I think about Ellen and her spouse, Eric. Ellen was dying. They'd been married for 10 years, but their families did not approve of their marriage and neither did their church. We had nothing, Eric said. Yeah, said Ellen, we had no support. We didn't even have flowers. Ellen and Eric loved each other and wanted to find a way to honor their love at the hospital before Ellen died. After talking with them, I invited the staff who had been caring for Ellen for many months to join us, and we created a flower blessing. Our flower shop at the hospital donated flowers, and we kept them at the floor's front desk for an hour, doctors, nurses, food service providers, social workers, case managers, and volunteers stopped by. Ellen held a vase, and upon visiting, each visitor dropped a flower in and offered a hope or a wish for the couple. By the end of the hour, the vase was bursting with flowers, and Ellen and Eric had heard many statements of support. Mabel couldn't stop crying, and her nurses didn't know what to do, 
It was the middle of the night, so they called me. I was the overnight chaplain for that night. I visited with Mabel, and eventually, she told me that she carried a huge secret. She had had an abortion as a teenager and couldn't ever tell anyone about it. I never got the chance to be sad or to talk about it, and now I can't stop thinking about it, Mabel said. Mabel talked about how her family and friends and church, they would have disowned her. I asked Mabel what she would like to do. If hiding this felt wrong, what would feel right? Oh, Mabel said, anytime someone in my church was suffering growing up, we sang Amazing Grace and we lit a candle. I asked Mabel if she would like to sing Amazing Grace. Now, the hospital, I've learned by trial and error, they do not allow you to light candles. But I found an electric candle and we used that and we sang Amazing Grace together. We did this at the start of every visit we had. And when Mabel left, she told me that she was gonna do this on her own every night. I've told you a lot of stories so far, and I'd like to invite you to return to your own stories for just a few moments. Are there rituals that already exist that you do feel safe in, in your life. Are there rituals that you feel outcasted by? What ritual might you need? What do you need to recognize in your life? What do you need to mark? What do you need us the people around you to mark and to recognize. As Unitarian Universalists, our principles and our sources tell us that what we believe and who we are, this matters. We are encouraged to find a guiding light not only around us and in the sources that inspire us, but within ourselves. So I ask you, what do you need to recognize? What do you need the world to see? What ritual can you create for yourself? Once you take care of yourself, think about how you can take care of others. What can we mark for each other in this space that we share? Who goes unrecognized here? What goes unrecognized? What do we not talk about? How can we make the invisible visible? When we mark something, we give it value. What an amazing way to uphold another's dignity. By reclaiming ritual, we can uphold justice, we can encourage reconciliation, and we can create belonging. You can create a ritual in a hospital, in a church, on the tea, or in the living room. Just as you are, you have the authority to reclaim ritual. You don't need a pulpit to do that. Rupi Carr, the poet 
whose words we lit our chalice with. She writes in a different poem, I am a museum full of art, but you have had your eyes shut. The world so often shuts its eyes to us. Eyes shut when Jonathan couldn't crown Mary and couldn't marry his husband and his church. Eyes shut when Mabel didn't have a way of marking and honoring her pain. Have eyes shut on you when we aren't noticed, when we are kept out, our beauty is missed. Let us keep our eyes wide open. Let us see who we are, what we need, and let us use rituals to mark the amazing, amazing works of art that we are. Amen and blessed be. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.